is Skinny Trees, an exploration of health inequities in and around Chicago, episode number four. Welcome, welcome to Skinny Trees Podcast. We are so happy to be with you. I am one of your co-hosts, Shania Taylor. And I am Jen. We're happy to be back with you guys. We have an awesome episode in store. And so I'll go ahead and let Jen introduce it. This episode is so awesome. We don't want to do like a lot of talk beforehand. So Jen, take it away. That's right, Shania. Today we talk to Howard Brown. Howard Brown is one of my favorite organizations in Chicago, and they are also one of the largest LGBTQ organizations in the nation. Um, They focus mainly on health and social services for uh, the LGBTQ community, but do not discriminate, so they take in all comers. Um, And just really quickly, LGBTQ means lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. We spoke to Kristen Keglovitz-Baker, a physician assistant and Howard Brown's chief operating officer. We learned that Howard Brown is such an interesting place. I want to quickly give you a lay of the land of where Howard Brown has been and what Howard Brown does. They are truly vital and key players in the world of LGBTQ individuals and their healthcare. So Howard Brown's beginning has a really interesting story. It was founded in 1974. In the beginning, there was a coffee pot, a portable kitchen table, a room above an old grocery market, and four medical students who were members of the Chicago Gay Medical Students Association who had a desire to help Chicago's gay community. They all really shared a passion for medicine and research and philanthropy sense of community and caring. Um, They believed that there was a need for a safe and confidential place where gay men and lesbian women could get empathetic psychosocial counseling and sexually transmitted infections or STI testing and treatment without political, professional, or personal implications or intrusions. During the late 70s, Howard Brown Health Providers identified a high rate of hepatitis B among its patients, which led to the agency's participation in several important studies and vaccine trials, which enabled the organization to hire its first paid staff. This work resulted in major scientific breakthrough and the actual development of the hepatitis B vaccine, which is huge. The development catapulted Howard Brown into the national spotlight and it gained the organization prominence and respect in the world of research. Yeah, and then in the 80s, Howard Brown really was a key player in the AIDS epidemic. They implemented the city of Chicago's AIDS hotline, which um, was ran by volunteers 24 hours a a day. They put in all of this programming um, and other operations for patients living with HIV and AIDS. And today they are literally one of the largest providers of healthcare, I believe, in the Midwest and the nation for LGBTQ. The Chicago locations of Howard Brown serve about 27,000 adults and youth each year. They work with people that are underinsured, uninsured, any age, any sort of sexual or identity, sexual or gender identity, and they have a ton of different clinic locations all around Chicago. So we're going to put some um, links in our show notes on our website, so please make sure to check it out. Before we go on to the interview, though, I just want to say a quick uh, few words about some of the stuff that you're going to be hearing in the interview, and it's really important that we level set for the LGBTQ community and our listeners. So the LGBTQ community is very rich in acronyms and a lot of different terms. 
So in short, we're gonna do a really quick uh, introduction and synopsis of what this is. So sex is what is assigned to you at birth. That's when you look at your birth certificate and you're checked off as either a male or a female. But gender is a lot more than that. Gender encompasses behaviors, characteristics, how you feel inside, how you express yourself, all of these different things. So in the LGBT community, there are two overarching terms that are super important to think about. And these terms are sexual orientation and gender gender identity. Gender identity is how you think of yourself. You can think of yourself as a female, a male, neither, a mix of both, or something completely outside of those categories. Sexual orientation is who you are interested in. So in short, sexual orientation is who you go to bed with and gender identity is who you go to bed as. Okay, so thank you so much for that explanation, Jen. So I just wanna be transparent. I, I'm like um, just learning all of these terms myself. So uh, going along with how you just defined the terms, I would classify myself as a cisgender, female, heterosexual woman meaning that I am comfortable with the sex that was given to me at birth, which is female, and my sexual orientation is straight, so I'm a heterosexual, meaning that I'm attracted to members of the opposite sex. So I'm still working on it, but I think I sort of got it right. I don't know. What do you think, Jen? I think, I think that makes sense. And I consider myself in that same category. I also consider myself an ally of the LGBTQ community. I've been considering myself an ally ever since I learned about that term. And that means that even though I'm not a part of the LGBTQ community, I stand next to them, I align with them, and I support them in any way that I can. So with all of that said, let's go to the show. It's a really good one. All right, thank you so much for joining us today. We are here with Kristen Keglovitz-Baker at Howard Brown. We're very excited to have you on the show. Um, but before we get started, we want to first ensure that we are using the proper terms. Can you give us and our listeners a quick crash course in what terms to use and what the different acronyms mean? Um, we've been noticing a lot lately that researchers are sometimes dropping the Q from LGBTQ. Great, thank you. Yeah, definitely um, terminology is really important in our community. Um, so the Q, uh, in we do include Q and that uh, stands for queer. Um, we find that most um, of our community really um, encompasses and embraces the word queer, especially in the younger community. Um, and some of it has to do with sort of historical terminology in the LGBT parts that um, don't have negative connotations for certain people. It also has um, a lot where it has a, embraces a broader spectrum of, of, of gender identity and gender expression. Um, and so when we talk about terminology, we typically use LGBTQ as our sort of standard. There's also even expansions of that where you'll sometimes see LGBTQIA, um, which stand also for allies and intersex. Um, so that's also a way you can um, encompass even more of the community. Um, and at Howard Brown, we, we typically use LGBTQ as our standard. There's also even expansions of that where you'll sometimes see LGBTQIA, um, which stand also for allies and intersex. Um, so that's also a way you can um, encompass even more of the community. Um, and at Howard Brown, we, we typically use LGBTQ as our standard. Okay, great. So as we go along, we'll say LGBTQ. Um, and and we mentioned it before, but if we make, if we say anything that uh, needs to be sort of corrected, please let us know because sure. we want to have this be an open and transparent dialogue. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your role here at Howard Brown? And then as you're telling us, maybe you can give us an idea of what an average day or an average week looks like for you. 
Sure. Um, so I've been at Har Brown uh, going on close to 11 years, um, and I, I'm a kind of in a unique role. I'm a, also a medical provider, so I'm a physician assistant, so I provide direct care to patients, but I'm currently in the role of a, as chief operating officer, which is largely an administrative role where I'm overseeing and leading the programs and the operations of the center. Um, a typical day for me uh, looks a little bit uh, like a lot of things. Um, it's it, whatever my calendar looks like in the morning typically isn't what it looks like at the end of the day. Operations is one of those things where um, if our call center isn't working properly or there's a patient that has a concern or needs um, extra help, that's something that my team is typically responding to pretty quickly. Um, so I do a lot um, of work sort of overseeing programs and coming up with um, creative ideas on how to deliver healthcare to a community that has historically um, had a lot of disparities as well as barriers to sort of mainstream uh, medicine. So it's a lot of creative work. Um, it's a lot of work with our board, our community advisory board, as well as our staff in how to um, continue to develop programs that uh, will reach out to patients and um, our, our end goal being able to embrace them as in their full lives from a mental health perspective, um, physical health perspective, um, sort of in their relationships and in their own um, sort of navigation of their health care. So that's uh, currently what I do. And then I still see patients one day a week. I'm really interested. You said that you implement creative ideas on how to deliver healthcare. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the programming that you have at Howard Brown in relation to that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when you think about traditional medicine, uh, my my background before I came to Howard Brown, I've always worked in underserved communities. And so I was in rural health before I was um, here. And if you think about healthcare delivery, it's a lot of the patient coming to us for a need and us then responding to that need. Um, what I've really worked on a lot in the decade that I've been at Howard Brown is how do we actually bring that service to the patient, especially when um, you're living in a community where healthcare isn't something that uh, you may see as a need for yourself. So because of how um, healthcare is set up, it's typically I don't feel well and so I'm gonna come get a service. And what we try to create is programs that engage people when um, they're feeling okay and when they're feeling um, just fine and figuring out how to get them in a system so that when they aren't feeling fine or preventing those things um, is really important. I think um, another piece of it is also uh, at the base of our mission is really important is that we see everybody regardless of ability to pay. And so we uh, really, when we say... uh, welcome all people, we mean that, and meaning that healthcare delivery is also set up in this country often where if you're able to have good insurance, you're able to pay for a service um, that I look at as a basic human right, then you you have access. But if you don't, um, you don't always have access um, other than sometimes an emergency room or something um, like that. So we've really looked at our programs in ways um, in that how do we reach out to patients proactively? How do we meet them where they're at? Um, the other thing that we base our sort of philosophy on is that um, healthcare um, can be fun and healthcare can be something that um, people aren't scared of. And so um, an example of that is uh, sort of creating a wellness workshop. So we're doing um, later this month, we're doing uh, what we call in a series of uh, black wellness um, events where we're sort of having community come out to an event and talk about um, what does safety look like in their communities and how do they have a part in that and how can a healthcare facility aid um, in safety in communities on, on the south and west side where we have clinics. And that in itself is also a time when we can sort of also say and we're here for you regardless if you're um, thinking you need healthcare or you're not um, it's always a good idea to get someone sort of in your corner um, as your healthcare partner so that when you do need us we're here and so thinking about ways to embrace community that doesn't just look like you know make an appointment come see a doctor um, because that can be really scary for people and especially patients in LGBT community who always haven't 
had a great um, experience or history or have even sometimes felt sort of left out of um, the healthcare uh, community, it, it kind of can uh, make people feel welcome again in different ways. Um, so that's one example. Um, another example is we try to do things like workshops. We did an aging workshop last week where we sort of had uh, patients coming in and uh, getting just really routine checkups, but also having um, some services. So, you know, we did some fun things like a raffle for them and um, telling them about some other um, checkups and, and coupled education with it on sort of a reading uh, workshop that sort of then engaged them in healthcare. So thinking really about what matters to communities um, and how um, we can sort of um, surround ourselves with that. Um, the third point I'll make about that is that um, when you talk about real social determinants of health, um, we believe at Howard Brown that if you're not addressing things like employment, housing, um, and education, you're going to have a really hard time having someone prioritize their health care because they're, they're thinking about their basic needs that day. So although we don't necessarily do housing directly, uh, we do try to work really hard at the basis of um, that, that notion of meeting patients where they're at. If a patient comes in and is saying, you know, today isn't the day I want to talk about my blood pressure, I really need to secure housing in the next week, um, we have case management available or we have a GD program to get people um, graduated, you know, with their GD to further that. We have employment workshops where we have tabling um, in our uh, community uh, waiting room most of the time where you'll have sort of services that wrap around um, services that that can enable that health and wellness we talk about you mentioned some of the um you mentioned sort of the overarching themes of the programs that you guys have and i want to dive deeper into the programs but before we do that can you just give us a quick snippet of what the patient population at howard brown looks like yeah absolutely um, so 60% of our patients identify as LGBTQ um, and self-identity um, in the community that we have our mission to serve. 40% um, either identify as heterosexual or something else or, or don't want to disclose. Um, we serve about 40% of our patients uh, fall below 200% of federal poverty. Um, we have a very uh, unique payer mix in that we have about 20% of our patients have no insurance, even despite the ACA. They're either um, ineligible for insurance in the ACA or they're um, between insurances or they're at lapse. Um, and then we have about 40% private pay and about 40% um, Medicaid, Medicare. So we have a unique payer mix um, that I think has been really beneficial for a place like Howard Brown. Uh, where patients who are uh, coming in with private insurance are in the same space as patients with public insurance or no insurance and sort of everyone expecting to get that same level of quality care. Um, we do tend to serve overall um, a younger population, although we're working hard um, on our aging services and some of um, those needs. Um, and we currently serve about, uh, we have about one of the largest transgender programs um, in the country that we know of, we serve currently about 1,700 patients who identify as uh, trans or gender nonconforming. Wow, great. And so for the 20% with no insurance, um, they can't be covered by the ACA or, or other areas. Do, Howard Brown covers those services? Yes. That's great. That's wonderful to hear. So from your website, on your bio specifically, the programs that were mentioned were a um, – alternative insemination program. We also listed a primary care opt-out for HIV testing, which I'm really curious to hear what that looks like. Um, and then there was a little bit of talk um, about expansion of PEDS or expansion to PEDS. Can you talk a little bit about those programs? Sure. Um, our last year or two, we've been really focused on, again, going back to that meeting patients where they're at, not just from um, a capacity of service delivery, but also geographically. So one of the things um, that we have, if you've seen, uh, we've opened up 
up in new neighborhoods. So we currently in the last year opened up a large center in Rogers Park. We have a new center in Englewood that's a little over a year old. Uh, we have a center in Hyde Park now that's a little over six months old. Um, we just opened in Edgewater last week. So lots of expansion. Um, and a lot of that's been driven by our patient needs. So when we've pulled data um, <coughs> on patients about where they're coming from and where they live and work and play, we realize that some people want, um, due to stigma or other issues, want to go far from their community to have health care, but some want it right in their neighborhood and their backyard. So we are giving them those options. Um, and then we talk about service delivery. So when we think about a community health center, we think about sort of um, true cradle to graves, true like how do we take care of people's whole families. Um, and as LGBT people um, have been having families for years, but it's certainly um, increasing and expanding. Um, we've also realized that we need to be able to provide services to help people in creating families as well as once they have families. So we have an alternative insemination program, um, and we call it alternative on purpose. Um, if you look up a AI on a Google search, it'll typically say artificial insemination. Um, and for us, there's nothing artificial about it. Um, there's a baby that comes at the end that's very real. And so the alternative part is just that people often don't have one piece of that, the egg or, um, or the sperm, to sort of create um, their family. And so we um, approach that program really in helping people create families, how it feels good to them. So we run, run a home insemination program where we um, teach people how to do that at home um, safely. We also do inseminations in the office. Um, and we also uh, have some counseling for patients who um, are needing maybe further services like fertility. Um, for pediatrics, we became a federally qualified health center in late 2015. And what that is, is it's basically the federal government's sort of stamp of approval um, that we are deemed, you know, full uh, federal qualified health center, community health center clinic. And with that, um, we were able to expand into areas like pediatrics and then soon to come dental. So we have pediatrics currently um, at a couple sites and we do see um, uh, you know, newborn and up. And then we also uh, will be expanding. Right now we refer out to dental. We do pay for patients dental um, through a voucher program, but we hope to be providing in late summer um, at our 63rd Street site, we'll be starting um, our own dental uh, clinic. We have the space, we have the staff, and now we're just uh, getting ready to sort of get that service up and running. Cool. I have a quick question. So um, I noticed that you're neighbors with the Chicago Women's Health yeah, Center, and I've, I've been there amazing. I've been a patient there myself. Um, so do you partner or refer to them in any way? We do. They're great partners to us. Um, not only this is our admin building where we're at now, so we don't have any services in this building. Um, and that's on purpose because Chicago Women's Health Center is right there. Um, we do. We both have alternative insemination programs, and so we've in the past sort of talked about how we can um, help each other with those programs. We also do some referrals back and forth, so we refer patients to them sometimes when um, the services we think might fit a little bit better for that patient. Um, they've referred to us in the past for things like um, when there's an abnormal pap smear and someone needs a col uh, colposcopy, we do that on site. Um, and we're in current conversations with their leadership about other ways, especially we just moved into the building we're in right now um, not even a year ago and so now that we're even closer neighbors trying to figure out if there's other ways we can even do some co-programming and, and other things together so certainly a good community partner and, and friend we have some of our staff have been on their board and vice versa and so it's been been a, a good relationship for sure um so you talked about some of the programming we heard about your awesome patient demographic can you tell us a little bit about sort of the the overarching things that lgbtq patients have issues with or we need to know more about or we need um more skin in the game on it just you know because i'm i'm i know that the issues that 
this community faces might be different from some of the other communities that we work with. So if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I always sort of joke and say that, you know, if we work ourselves out of a mission where we basically have succeeded, right? So it, the, the ultimate goal would be at a place where there isn't a need for an LGBT-based um, center because that means that all um, medical practice is approaching um, care in sort of a centric way. I would say the, the biggest basis of what we hear from our patients that they need um, is to feel comfortable and to feel welcomed and supported. And so um, if you even look at the last few years where, you know, gay marriage is now um, legal, I think that some people thought that that was sort of the end all like it's legal what what is the need where do we see um, still a big need and I think recognizing that there's still a ton of um, disparities that despite um, us getting you know a human right like uh, marriage um, equality there's still so many aspects of a person um, who identifies as LGBTQ um, that they still suffer when it comes to health disparities and health inequities and so it comes everywhere from the actual um, disparities which we think about in areas of smoking substance use different cancers HIV STIs, but then it also even in a larger picture comes from healthcare delivery. So often what we hear from our patients is that if everyone could work from a framework um, of what I, I always say if everyone could work actually from a framework even more microscopic than LGBT and just say from a trans and gender nonconforming framework in medicine, we basically would have such a successful healthcare system because much of what our patients come to are the things like the environment of care, the waiting room, you know, being mispronounced, um, having a healthcare provider not understand their unique needs about who their partners are, um, their bodies, who they're having sex with, who they love, um, kind of not understanding why um, it is a need and why there are higher um, rates of still, you know, mental health and discrimination in areas like employment and housing and all those areas. So we really, um, you know, see ourselves as sort of a need. And I think what's interesting is when you look at our demographics, you see that 40% of people who don't necessarily identify as LGBTQ still accessing our services. And when we sort of talk to those patients, some of what they say is it is those frameworks. It's that welcoming environment, um, that feeling that no matter who I am, um, or it's a non-judgmental care. Um, one example of that is uh, we have a very large, uh, rep- a very good reputation in areas Um, of sexual health and wellness and um, many patients come to us disclosing things like sexual assault that they're not comfortable doing so in a hospital environment or other things and I think that they feel like it's in a supportive environment where um, they also can not be not be judged not feel like they're a number Um, we get also a lot of patients who come to us to talk about intimate things that they necessarily uh, don't feel comfortable talking otherwise and feeling like we're going to work with them and work with them on whatever their health goals are rather than telling them what they should do or shouldn't do Um, And I think it's really back to that partnership and health. So the way as a healthcare provider that I often work with my patients is um, hearing them, um, listening, and sort of saying, you know, what do do you want to accomplish when it comes to your your health? And when I can hear their goals, then I can use my skills to sort of help them get there um, rather than what I think often traditional medicine has looked at as sort of this um, prescriptive, very, you should do this, and if you do this, it'll result in this. Um, And I think that for many patients, that doesn't always feel great or, and really, in research hasn't proven to always be very successful in in getting the health outcomes we want to. Are you hopeful that this sort of model could be translated to a large healthcare system that doesn't, that consists of a lot of physicians or clinic staff that might not have the same mindset or might not have the same training or might not have been brought up sort of in that culture or in that model? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I'm always so curious to hear it. Yeah, I think it needs to come from, I mean, I think you speak about training, which is really important. You know, when I look back to my own training, um, 
still to this day in medical schools, PA schools, NP schools, nursing schools, we're getting better, um, but there's certainly still not enough of that sort of soft skill training part. You know, we learn a lot in school, and we need to, about disease and risk and how to take care of someone medically, but, um, you know, you often don't hear enough from from people in in society that like they had a great healthcare experience or they felt like the provider was really kind to them or the front desk person was compassionate you know i think healthcare has become it's very it's it's difficult being in healthcare it's busy there's a lot of bureaucratics there's a lot of um sort of you know uh compliance there's all kinds of things that add to it and i think if we can focus on um, the training that we have when people are excited especially with their attention they're you know in schools where people are really eager to get out and see patients and they're not quite years and years in it where it's a little harder to get them um, excited about i think we could have a real opportunity to to uh, get those frameworks in place so that people can um, approach the work one thing i've noticed in the 10 years i've been at howard brown is i often meet people who say like well, you know, I don't necessarily think that I take care of many LGBT people, um, or I'm not sure this applies to me. And I sort of say, well, you know, everybody does, whether you know it or not. You might not be asking the right questions, um, but even if you're not, you can, again, take these principles and these frameworks and sort of apply them um, to all people. Um, I always tell people, too, that, you know, LGBT people, um, me, myself, being identifying in the community, you know, when it comes to just nuts and bolts medicine, you know, we have lungs like anyone else. We have a heart, we have a liver, we have, you know, organ and body parts that need to be taken care of very similarly. Um, but we don't always get those things taken care of when we've had a bad experience or we're nervous or we don't uh, feel like we want to go through that re-trauma of sort of being um, not treated, you know, uh, with compassion or kind of with that area or being judged or um, feeling, you know, kind of less than. So I think that that's um, an important thing. But really in the training, I think we have a, a lot of opportunity there. Where we could do a lot. Do you do, does Howard Brown do any sort of workshops or outreach to, um, you know, to the, to the bigger hospitals in the city that don't, I know you guys work with a lot of them. So do you train physicians? Yeah, we do. We, um, we have an education department, um, that's led by C. Sardacker, our director of education. And, um, we have a couple different programs. We have a nurse nursing training program called HEAL that they do a lot of curriculum development in the nursing schools. And that's been, amazing. There have been thousands of nurses trained through that program. Um, we also do get requests quite often, whether it's at a conference or whether it's at a hospital. Um, like Currently right now we're training um, a nearby hospital, pretty large system on um, sexual assault response and sort of how to do it out of a framework um, that we believe in, which is community-based. Um, and that's gone really well. Um, we do. We also do things like pronoun training. We do basic sort of um, staff training like front desk, environment of care, all those things that make such a huge difference. Um, so we do do a fair amount um, of training. And certainly if we had, you know, more funding, more resources, we probably could do 10 times as much. But um, <coughs> that is one aspect that you'll see really clearly in our strategic plan um, that we're committed to in the next three years is even doing more er- more in the area of advocacy, research, and education. Sorry, there's like so many questions mm-hmm. running through my mind. Um, so... I'm wondering, do you see, like, hospitals moving towards a better model? Because I'm thinking, so we have a fellows program that's running right now in our group, and I think tomorrow they're going to be participating in what's called a safe space training. Mm -hmm. And so it's done by the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. But I wonder how in-depth this training will be. I don't know if a member of the LGBTQ community is running the training. So it just makes me wonder, have you seen, or do you have specific examples where you've seen people really forging ahead in this area? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we're fortunate enough, like in the state of Illinois, I think we've actually had a lot of buy-in. Like recently, the Illinois Primary Care Association um, sort of told us for the next year they want their health centers to go through a training um, done by us, and we were excited about that. Um, I think you bring up a good point. Like one of the things that's really important is that um, currently we have a committee at Howard Brown um, called Diversity and Inclusion, and one of the things that was really important to us is that it's we've often seen to be you know really frank we've often seen at hospitals and larger institutions where there sort of is a committee or there's a commitment but it's really surface it sort of is the end of the day to get that stamp to sort of say you know we check the box and we meet it but really is it what we're are we walking the walk and talking the talk every day and i think that that's something we've been really um, committed to at howard brown is figuring out how to actually um, be committed to that not just to get that sort of stamp of approval but how do we sort of have that in our everyday framework how does it look like in our hiring practices what does it look like in um, who we embrace in the community as well as our employee base? You know, how do we deliver um, care? And um, I think that that, uh, I think there's a lot of people doing it really well, um, Howard Brown as well as many others that um, do a great job with that. Does your team ever feel disheartened? Yes. I mean, so yeah, things just really being honest, I mean, things that keep me up at night is, you know, the current, um, the current Illinois budget, but also the Affordable Care Act. I mean, um, one thing I would say, if you look at community health centers across the country, um, historically eligible Medicaid has been moms and babies. That's been a big part of who we've always sort of taken care of. And for a place like Howard Brown, where we don't historically have a lot of moms and babies, although families are growing, that isn't a big part of our patient base. Um, We have a much larger stake in the game when it comes to the ACA. Many, many, many of our patients um, were first time ever eligible adults who had previously not been eligible for Medicaid. And so when we think about um, the ACA going away um, or this being something that is at stake, it's a huge amount of not only um, for our organization and kind of the sustainability and, and, and our growth and what we want to accomplish, but also um, the lives of our patients. You know, as a direct service provider, when I'm in clinic, um, I think we underestimate how much people carry this on their backs every day, where they're thinking about what it's like to be without health insurance again, and the goals and the progress that we've made in the last few years with their health, given that they now have access to specialty care, they're always going to have a Howard Brown, regardless if the ACA goes away or not. What they won't have access to are those things that um, they had before, which is me being able to rely on a specialist or me being able to um, have a, a local hospital be able to take care of someone when they need it. And um, when we talk about mental health concerns, what we're seeing, even with it being at stake and not even being um, a for sure thing that's going to stay or go away yet, is patients are that's increasing their anxiety and their depression um, and their just stress about sort of, um, you know, how do I even think about a time when I'm going to go back to being uninsured and what is that going to look like for the medicine I take? What is it going to look like for all the things I can't get outside of this visit? Um, And so I'm proud to say that we're going to still be here for you no matter what, but the unknowns of what I can't say is what is it going to look like for your medication covers, the things we can't always provide 100% support on or your specialty care, or if you end up needing to go to the hospital. And so those are things that um, we certainly feel uneasy and discouraged about always. Um, I think the political environment um, has made it really hard, um, also just in general for our patients in terms of their lives and not always feeling like their lives matter um, and that people are making decisions um, for their lives that that don't actually understand what what it is um, to be someone that identifies as LGBT and um, how it does it, how it feels to sometimes not always feel safe in certain spaces. And um, so I think that it's something that weighs heavy on our staff um, quite a bit because 
we are so mission-based. Um, as you walk around Howard Brown, it's it's palpable how much our staff care about our patients and our community. Um, we have incredibly dynamic staff. They're always thinking about creative ways to sort of help the patient, to go above and beyond, to think of a program um, in a community where we've had a hard time, you know, getting um, uptake. So, for instance, in, you know, HIV is a good example of that. We're, you know, almost 40 years into this epidemic and we still are seeing you know thousands and thousands of new infections a year and although we've decreased infections in certain communities we're seeing that certain communities um, are having increased rates of infection and I think that it's that that conversation about that larger system and that safety not going away um, could have huge impacts on patients um, especially those living in poverty or those that um, are suffering other sort of social disparities um, of health so and social determinants of health. How do you um, decide what community? So you you said that you just there's a center in Hyde Park that's like six months old. You mm-hmm. said so. How do you decide which communities that we oh we should establish Howard Brown here? Are you sure. hearing from the community? Are you doing focus groups or how does that? Yeah, a couple of different ways. So we do have a community advisory board, and that um, is a, all members of the community who we do get feedback on. We also look at our patient demographics. So when we start to look at our um, demographics and we say, wow, there's a lot of patients coming from the zip code. Um, does, they're traveling pretty far to come from the zip code, and we map out, you know, where are health centers now. And there's a lot of criteria that when we look into a new site, we always want to make sure one that it's um, accessible by public transportation. So we're proud that all of our sites are within a block of a major um, train line or a major bus line. Um, we look also at uh, are there other community health centers in the neighborhood. So we never want if we, there are, we want to reach out to them and sort of say we see this need. Um, should we partner together? Do you see us having a need? So making sure we're being good community partners and good. Um, so if there's another similar like place to us that we're we're, we're talking about that. Um, we also look at um, a need score. So there's sort of a need score that talks about uh, pockets of where there actually isn't enough health um, providers per capita of people, and that um, our mission is to always go into a high need area so with our Englewood site um, that was certainly one of the main reasons was that there is not a lot of community health providers in that area Hyde Park although (coughs) the university is right there there it actually is a very high need area when it comes to uninsured and Medicaid Um, so even though you see a lot of medical ongoing and kind of the culture in Hyde Park there's not we actually are providing a safety net that isn't isn't necessarily being provided in that area um, and then we also look at where do where do our the people who we have our mission closest to LGBTQ people where do they um, live work and play and so where where are their needs coming um, if we opened up here what would that look like um, so we do needs assessments based on zip code and geographic uh, geographic area but we also uh, do need based on age and um, and sort of gender um, and sexual orientation so we're about to embark for instance in a couple months on a needs assessment for women because that's a, a community that we could do a better job in in terms of uh, bringing more people into care. So we'll kind of be doing a needs assessment to figure out, you know, is it our locations that aren't, um, that we could do a better job of? Is it our programming? Is it the services we're offering? Um, and so that helps us also. You talked about, so we have a, we're going to wrap up pretty soon. We have a few more questions, but these questions just kind of keep popping into my head. Do you receive any stigma from community health centers is an example but just organizations um leadership in chicago like how has chicago been very embracing of howard brown has that changed over time yeah um chicago has certainly been embracing we have very good relationships with the chicago department of public health we have good relationships with the illinois department of public health um you know we've been trying to do the the model that i think has worked really well at howard brown is that we 
try to reduce stigma in every aspect. So not just um, you know where we're located, but how we deliver services. So one example of that is if you were to attend, visit one of our clinics today, in the same waiting room, there is children there for their annual checkup. There are patients there accessing mental health. There's patients sitting waiting for the pharmacy, and there's um, patients living with HIV that are waiting for their appointment. And that has created, um, as much as we can, um, hopefully a reduce, reduction in stigma. Stigma is certainly something that plagues our community. Um, it plagues our community from sexual orientation and gender identity. It also plagues our community in areas like hep C and HIV. And I think the way that all of our providers are trained um, in all of those things so we don't have specialty clinics where it's you know Monday is HIV clinic day and Tuesday's hepatitis is just every day all day so when I'm in clinic for instance a day a week I go into room one and I see someone for high blood pressure who's 65 and has been coming to Howard Brown for 20 years and just has always and I go into room two and it might be a 23 year old who just was recently diagnosed you know with HIV and I go to room three and it's um, someone there for her pap and she's there for her regular so there's a lot of um, a community feel to our waiting rooms and I think that that's helped with some reduction of stigma um, we certainly still by name alone it's something that I think we're very proud of that our mission and we don't hide behind that our mission is in LGBTQ health at the same time um, yes there certainly there are patients who probably don't prefer to come to us because coming to us they don't know that 40 percent don't identify and they they may prefer somewhere else and that's okay too um so that's the way that you know we look at it is that if if we're not the place for you when we do our testing for instance we give patients an option we say we offer these services at our sites if that's not a place you want to go here's some community partners that we also um, can refer you to and so we look at it very much as um not something where we certainly would love to be patients um providers of choice but we also want patients to go where they feel most comfortable. And so our outreach team, for instance, um, is is sort of armed with all of the options that they may have on the table, depending on what their needs are. Some patients want more of a university setting. Some patients want nothing to do with LGBT in the name. Some really think that we're the one and they want to come to us. So we try to uh, do that as well. Um, so we, we have a couple more questions. Um, so what is sort of the call to action for supporters of the LGBTQ community? Um, so what can advocates do to support the community and spread the word regarding the need for care and resources? Yeah, um, so advocates can, I think, think about all of the areas where some of the larger um, healthcare activities that are going on, how they really are going to affect the LGBT community. Um, and, and thinking about it in sort of a larger picture way um, that all the steps forward we've taken with things like marriage equality and some of the other areas um, in trans and gender nonconforming health is that we these uh, these decisions that are being made could could bring us you know steps and steps way behind. Um, so I think that that's one thing. The second is just to remember that. Um, they're, these are people within our communities. They're in our workplaces. They're, you know, interacting with us on the train in the morning, you know, while we're getting a coffee, whatever's going on, that um, we as a community live, work, and play just like anybody else, um, and that our healthcare disparities are unique um, because I do believe because a lot of because of the healthcare delivery um, in the past that hasn't sort of um, reached out to us in a way that has felt like super inviting or um, inclusive of us. And so I think um, thinking about um, our systems and thinking about how to advocate um, for this community, um, thinking of our young people in the community, that's another thing that um, again, I, I, I know I brought this up earlier in it, but I think, you know, although marriage equality was such a huge um, victory, I think sometimes our allies um, who don't identify as LGBTQ don't understand why it doesn't stop there. Like I often get the question of like, 
well, I don't understand. You have marriage equality now. What's the, and I'm sort of like, you know, when you're a young um, trans or gender nonconforming young person who is trying to navigate their way through um, home life and um, all of the education system and sort of all these things, it's, it's far more than just um, one aspect of sort of something. And so thinking about us holistically as a community and sort of um, our, our needs as well and, and why those needs are, are unique. Um, I think also advocacy on a larger level when it comes outside of health, so areas like um, in our school system, you know, how can we make um, systems more um, inclusive of LGBT families? So um, simple things like being an LGBT parent myself, you know, instead of mother, father, you know, having uh, different language on our forms and in our ways are all the little tiny signs that tell us we're welcome. And those things um, always, they're they're so little, but they lead to, I think, um, there being more of a sort of affirming, welcoming community that can go a long way. You know, also one of the things I've talked about is like, you know, not just saying, well, they've done this, so that's okay. I feel like that's a big step. It's like, no, say thank you for doing that bare minimum thing and let's push harder um, to get to a place where we feel, you know, like there's equity. Um, And I think that's the difference to me between equity and equality is that we need to make sure that there's equity. And when we talk about equity, um, that just those basic rights are not always afforded um, just by, and we know this across not just LGBTQ, you know, so many aspects um, even within our own community, across race, across um, gender identity, across you know gender expression, poverty, um, all of those things, and so I think it's just important for us to like constantly be advocating and pushing systems to um, think about us, um, not seek to erase us, whether it's done um, you know on purpose or or by ignorance, but just being being more aware of that um, can go a long way. Awesome. We're gonna wrap up, but. We do this with all of our guests. We want to ask you one last question, and that question is, what is your favorite book and why? My favorite book and why? Um, hmm. I would say that it's probably, can I have a favorite author? Sure. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> um, anything by Juno Diaz. He's okay. my favorite author. Okay. Um, and I just, I enjoy his writing because, um, He's creative. He can. I can read a book and feel like inspired, educated, and kind of laugh um, all at the same time. Um, and I feel like a lot of the work I do is pretty heavy, so I like I like to read and kind of have it be. I I can't do too much lightheartedness because then I like that's just not my nature. But I like his like mixture of kind of you know bringing some issues up to the forefront in in fictional ways that um, are relevant. And so awesome. I like him. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Kristen. We really hope that you guys enjoyed that episode as much as we did. And I just want to say I'm really grateful to have been able to go to Howard Brown to see a little bit of their administrative facilities and to chat with Kristen. We want to send a shout out to her. Thank you so much again for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. And for me, it was just very enlightening. And um, I want to encourage you guys to always be open minded and willing to learn about the issues and disparities in communities that are unfamiliar to you. Um, in my personal life, I've found that life becomes more rich, fulfilling, and meaningful when we step outside of our normal and lend a helping hand to a person in need, regardless of their affiliation. So again, we want to give kudos to Howard Brown. Um, and sort of as we wrap up this episode, we want to let you guys know of some upcoming events that might be of interest um, that Howard Brown is sponsoring. So we have Out in the Park, September 9th from 7 p.m. till t- about 12 p.m. And then also... 
Howard Brown hosts what's called Market Days, um, and it's their Health Village. And so there's one coming up Saturday, August 12th, and Sunday, August 13th. That'll be from 12 to 6 p.m., um, and it'll be hosted in the Halstead Clinic parking lot. And so there'll be a lot of fun, information, tasty activities. You'll have free HIV screenings. There's going to be a condom bar, ask a doctor tent, a photo booth, popcorn. I mean, how can you guys stay home and there's going to be free popcorn? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we should go. Yeah, let's go. It's awesome. We're putting it on the calendar. Uh, also, guys, make sure to check out the Skinny Trees podcast website for this episode. We are packing it full of resources with additional information on the LGBTQ terminology. We're going to put some additional things that we found through researching Howard Brown and also researching more about um, proper ways of discussing the LGBTQ population. We have this awesome thing at Northwestern um, under diversity inclusion called the LGBT Outlist and Ally List. It's a list of folks that are literally allies of the LGBTQ community or out um, and a part of the LGBTQ community. And it's around to just foster a sense of support um, and allow people to really identify as they truly feel that they should be identifying as. So we are just padding the website full of resources. We also um, have links to the Howard Brown Broadway Youth Center, which is an amazing little spot run by Howard Brown for LGBTQ youth. Um, or individuals that are under the age of 18 experiencing homelessness or housing instability. And we are also putting a link up to Brown Elephant, which is this awesome resale shop. Um, I have been to the Lakeview location, and all of the proceeds from Brown Elephant go to supporting patients that cannot afford health care. So we're getting out of here, guys. And always remember, be kind, be different, and be great. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the lab of Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Melissa Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Service Services Task Force. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content. Uh-huh.